good day, good afternoon, and, and whatever it is. Whenever time you listen to this show, welcome. My name is Wardy Ward, and I'm going to be your tour guide in this educational self-help episode of What's Up Award TV. Our motto is, everybody has a story to tell, but we just want to know what's yours. Mm. On this show, we discuss everything from love, life, relationships, and much more in between. We firmly believe that a stranger is just a friend you haven't spoken with yet. Well, as for me, I'm super excited to have this interview today because my guest is more than an established equity, inclusion, and harm reduction strategist. She is also someone who's pragmatic, pensive, and positive, and that's just the beginning. It's been said that every team needs a high-energy, innovative, and collaborative thinker. Therefore, every team needs a Michelle. With that being said, Michelle, welcome to the show. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. I'm excited, and I need to take that snippet, that that intro that you just did, and use it <laughs> everywhere else that I go, Ward. That was great. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Well, hey, you you inspired me, so I'm glad you're here. So how are you doing on this sunny day in the, in, in Indiana? I am doing well. I've had a very busy morning. I, maybe I didn't tell you this part, but I play in an adult basketball league. And so what? we just... <laughs> Man. So um, I just finished a game right before jumping on here. I sprinted as fast as I could. And then as soon as we get off this oh. call, my son has a basketball game. So we're full of basketball today <laughs> and ready okay. for the Super Bowl tomorrow. Yeah, it's a lot going on here. Now, hopefully you scored a lot of points in that game. Absolutely not. <laughs> okay, that's not your thing. Okay, hey. <laughs> and in fact, no. So here's the thing. I'm actually pretty good i'm usually a score today i think yeah. i was just exhausted i've played already six okay. times this week today was seven Ooh. number seven mm. so my legs mm. were dead i was airballing yeah. and all the things but oh, i feel like that's kind of the story of life and i know we're going to get into a, a neat topic and i'll be able to tie in some of my basketball experiences into today's conversation Absolutely. And I just want to add that I am a super basketball fan. I love basketball any chance I get. I think it's the greatest sport yeah. ever. So I appreciate you doing that for the community. Wonderful. <laughs> All right. Before we jump to the weeds, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Like, where did you grow up in your childhood? Do you have any yeah. siblings? And, and um, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, yeah. So I am from Indianapolis, Indiana, Hoosier through and through. Although mm -hmm. I like to say I'm really a country girl from the South that just happened to be born up North. Um, I have five amazing brothers. I am the only girl and mm -hmm. I was raised by a single dad who's from Port Gibson, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my upbringing really shapes my personality um, and my approach to the work that I get to do. I went mm -hmm. to Indiana University so I'm a Hoosier at heart. I still yes. live in Bloomington. Um, and it's been special, right? I didn't think that I would be here this long, but now I'm here. I have an amazing husband and a son and a fur baby. Her name is Lola. She might try to come and steal the show here in a little right, bit. Right, right. Okay. Um, and so that's who I am. What did I want to be when I grew up? Yes. I always thought yep. I would be a teacher, that I would be mm. doing traditional teaching in the classroom. And then um, when I was 14, I started working as a camp counselor, loved it, mm. loved enjoying the summers at the YMCA, had a blast. And then my dad was like, well, you're about to try out this internship with the IU Simon Cancer Center. You're actually going to do mm. cancer research instead of working at a camp. 
And I was like, dad, mm. I know nothing about cancer research. I love science. I'm a, I'm a nerd in school, yeah. but to do actual research, it was the most life-changing thing that I ever done. I started off doing research within a phenomenal mentor Ended up earning my publication before graduating high school and went on to Indiana University to pursue degrees in biology. So now I'm doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work because my dad pushed me into that STEM research program. And I can share more about that later. Okay. So, wow, your dad seemed like he's a phenomenal guy. And uh, being raised by a single dad, did that help you to become more logical, per se, or not saying it other way it couldn't have been, but... Well, what it did help me understand was survival and how that is necessary, mm. and it is what motivated me to, to be so resilient and creative around solving problems. And the reason why I say it helped me think about survival is because when my dad was raising us, he actually was battling three different types of cancer. Oh. And one of the things he said to me is, you are my only daughter. If I leave this world, you are going to have to take care of your brother. So I'll never forget, I was 10 years old. He brought me wow. into the kitchen. And he said, I'm going to teach you how to make breakfast and he taught me that day pancakes bacon eggs he's like this is cheap I can keep um food stocked in the freezer I can always keep boxes of pancakes I'll keep dozens of eggs that's what we when we make grocery lists that's what we would always have mm -hmm. bacon eggs pancakes butter milk um and we grew yes. up in a very impoverished background right so mm -hmm. I also got really creative on how to make money stretch how to feed yes. a family off of the bare minimum, how to make sure mm -hmm. we were meeting the need for education, for extracurriculars. My dad could save money like nobody in this world. I mean, until this day, I have to tell him, dad, all of your kids are grown. They are successful. They're in their careers. You can take $10 to buy you a hamburger because you deserve it, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So yes, it beyond logic, it was this resilience. It was this creativity. It was this ability to survive in any environment that I was in that brought me to who I am today. Mm, nice. Uh, back in the day, Puffy had a show called Making the Band. I don't know if you ever saw that. Uh, yeah, uh, Danity Kane is my music group. <laughs> okay. Yeah, <laughs> what you were just describing it sounded like you'd have been great on that show because you like you can get that cheesecake at two in the morning. I think you you would have did it. I could All figure right. it out. I could figure it out, and I'm not the best vocalist, but because of those survival skills and that creativity, I could help you believe that I'm a good vocalist. <laughs> right, exactly. That's where it's at. <laughs> uh, I want to say your name is Nichelle, right? Am I saying that right, Nichelle? Yes. Yes. That's such a unique name. Did, how did was there a backstory behind that? Because you're the only Michelle I know. I keep wanting to say Michelle, but my mind really? said, nope, Michelle, pull it back. You know, yeah. so the 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 most it's the most basic story, but I have an aunt. Her name is Michelle with an M. And my mm -hmm. family decided to name me in alignment or after her, you could say. And my name is Nichelle with an N. Now, when I got okay. to college, a lot of people would ask me, are you named after Nichelle Nichols, the famous Black actress? I had never heard of Nichelle Nichols. So I learned that later in college, but I'm named after my aunt. And the okay. interesting thing is my aunt 
similar, similarly to my story, is the only girl and she has five brothers. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. Now, what, what does your family call you? Do they call you nickname or is it just... They call me Shell. Mm, Most people, okay. 99.9% of the people in my family call me Shell. There is one person who's allowed to call me Shelly, and Ooh. that is my grandfather. And that name is reserved to him. I will not respond <laughs> okay. to anyone else okay. who call me Shelly. But most people call me Shell. Okay. All right. So so granddad got that hanging in the rafters retired. So we got that. Yep. Okay, cool. Yeah. Special, right. special right. man, special, special place in my heart. Okay, understandable. All right, um, let's get get into it. Um, can you explain to our listening audience um, what it is that you do in your role? What, yeah. And, and just why companies are coming for your uh, services. Absolutely. So I yeah. like to so tell basically, people. Basically, what, 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 yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I think we kind of um, had a, a lapse in connection. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I like to tell people the best way like for me. Uh oh, can you hear me, Ward? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't. You just go ahead. It's a little lap, but it'll catch up. Okay. Um, I used to tell people that I was a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant. And what has happened to the words diversity, equity, and inclusion is that many people have complicated the definitions. So people are very defensive and they feel um, the words, the words have been weaponized against people. And I recognize that as I would tell people that that's what I would do, that that's what I did. They will have these visceral reactions sometimes and automatically think that I'm here with some political agenda. And so now what I tell people, how I explain it to people is that I am an organizational strategist. And I help people solve their most critical people issues. I just happen to help people leverage diversity, equity, and inclusion to do so. So what does that mean? An organization can be having an issue around, why aren't my volunteers engaged anymore? What happened? Mm -hmm. Why aren't they mm -hmm. giving extra hours to fulfill the mission? Or maybe your employees, they're great when they clock in, but then they want nothing to do with the organization when they clock out. Maybe you have a congregation that is segregated even on Sundays. You mm -hmm. find that people are only flocking to their particular group. There's not this real intermingling or cross-cultural building within your congregation. I come in and I help people have candid conversations on what happened, what possibly needs to happen to get them to the most ideal state for their organization. And most times, Ward, what we find out is that the barriers are cultural. How do hmm. people communicate? How do people resolve conflict? How do people find value, find motivation? And all of those are cultural considerations and it's shaped by your morals and your ethics and different diversity dimensions, whether that's your geography or what type of home you were raised in, or are you an immigrant here? Or So there's so many different things that I help tease out 
And before we can get to the practical, we'll do this and don't do this. I try to really help people understand you're navigating culture. And while it's a beautiful thing, it's incredibly complex. So I also try to pull out the stigma, right? And try to reduce it and try to undo this weaponization of diversity work so that people get really excited about leaning into something that's incredibly hard, but incredibly rewarding. Wow, that's a lot. So I can see the value of a company realizing that, but I'm thinking a company's coming to you and say, hey, this this is the caveat we need to resolve. Aren't they kind of aware of it anyway? I mean, is, is it like common sense not being common? How do they not know that we're doing A, B, and C? Culture is so complex. There's no common sense to it. I think that when we're talking about culture, because it is a person's own perception of their membership groups and how they show up, it's really hard to say, just have common sense. There are some values that we may have living in particular communities that may be shared across cultural dynamics, but that still may look different and it's a learning process. So I try to stay away from this idea that it's common sense and really lean into that there's an opportunity here to build bridges, to shift our own attitudes and behaviors to build those bridges, rather than focusing on this idea of this is common sense, you should know this. Because the reality is, it's not. I did a training before for a government organization. I was responsible mm -hmm. for, and I say organization, before a, a local government. And there are 587 employees that they asked me to train. And as they were going through some of the trainings, one of the very first questions I asked them in their very first session, they had to complete six sessions. I asked them, what's the hardest part about talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And some people said, I'm so afraid to say the wrong thing that I don't say anything at all. Mm -hmm. And as we were going through this, there was a particular employee that was doing this training and she was having a very hard time with accepting the realities of what we were talking about. Until we got to lesson four out of six, where she finally learned about Jim Crow laws. Oh yeah. And she had never heard of this before. This woman is 57 years old and never heard of Jim Crow laws. And so when I started to tease out, well, where are you from? Tell me about your upbringing. Tell me about mm -hmm. your classroom experiences. Tell me about your children, your grandchildren. She grew up in a very small rural community, was homeschooled until college, went to a small conservative college and has raised her family in the mm -hmm. same environment. Where were they supposed to learn about Jim Crow laws? Because we know it's not in every textbook. Where is she supposed to learn this? So we can say it's common sense to be able to understand how um, racism and slavery and segregation are still playing itself out. We can say that because you and I probably know that and have heard mm -hmm. Um, generational stories of this but for the people who have grown up in this bubble and have been protected from these realities they don't know that it's not common sense for them yeah yeah I definitely can see that I guess I um 
kind of reminds me when I was a kid, my parents used to send me to Mississippi yeah. from Indiana. Yeah. I still do not like that state, but I see what you're saying because where we were, it was very, very dark and, you know, rural and all, all that stuff. Yeah. So yeah, I, I guess that does make sense. So then when you change your environment, come somewhere different, I guess you wouldn't be expected of that. Absolutely. So, so my question now is how, how do you, how do you bridge that to get people to change their way of thinking after something that was cemented in their yeah. lifestyle for so long? How World do you War? break that up? Yeah. This is why I tell people I'll never be out of a job. I'll never be out of a job because the reality is at the same time that we need people to learn these things, we've also got to help them unlearn all of the things yeah. that they have been conditioned to believe. And so mm -hmm. with the garden, which is the consulting company that I created um, and I'm the CEO of, we have three principles, okay. education, accountability, and grace. Education being everyone's responsibility because we have to stop assuming that people can learn about us without talking to us. So everyone's job, everyone has a responsibility for education. Now, this is where I do draw the line though. I'm not responsible for what you do with your learning. I plant the mm -hmm. seed. It is your job to sow it and to nurture that seed to grow it into something meaningful for your communities. We are seed planters. We do not nurture it all, okay? But we are responsible for planting seeds. In addition to planting the seeds, when we do our part, there's this piece of accountability, meaning I don't make excuses, I make adjustments. As I learn, I am adjusting my language. I am adjusting my behaviors. I am adjusting my expectations. It's this requirement to adjust rather than making the excuse of, well, no one taught me that, or that's not how I think about it, mm -hmm. or that's not how my family thinks about it, or this is just how it is where I'm from. I don't care about your excuse. You've now learned something. Yeah. You are now required to make the appropriate adjustment. And as people are getting comfortable with accountability, there's this piece that I think is the most important pillar and it's grace. Grace is unearned. It is freely given and grace cannot run on a background check. Meaning my grace cannot be conditional based on what I've seen or heard from you in the past. Because when our grace is conditional, then people are afraid to lean into the learning and to fail forward with accountability. So you have to have grace. Grace says, I recognize you've learned something and I'm going to hold you accountable, but you're going to make another mistake. And I'm going to treat you as though I've never been hurt, as though I've wow. never been disappointed, as though you've never wronged me. And I choose to do that because I recognize that you're learning, that you're being educated, and that you're working on being held accountable to this. So you're trying to make adjustments. That's what grace is. Grace recognizes that people are learning and trying to make adjustments rather than holding them to their most imperfect moments. Would that be fair to say that 
you come into an organization and, and you help them to, to see these changes and the reasons for change. But you said you, they got to do it or what they're going to do with it. Have all the pamphlet, the package, and the knowledge, but still, I kind of feel uncomfortable doing A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. Do you have to keep coming back and giving them tune-ups every now and then to make sure we're still trying to reaffirm what we told you, you know? Absolutely. Because think about it, Ward. You and I sitting here today, we've had decades of conditioning. We've had decades mm-hmm. of being steeped in and saturated in our own beliefs. You think one session with the garden is going to help someone undo all of that? It's a lifelong journey. <laughs> Probably not. It's a lifelong journey. Mm-hmm. So yes, there are often times where my where my clients will contract with me over a multi-year period because they want to see where they started at year one oh. and then be able to have this continuous support across sometimes three to five years. So absolutely, mm-hmm. there are tune-ups for my um for my clients that don't necessarily contract across multiple years yeah they'll keep bringing me back on a routine cadence whether that's every six months or every year to Mm -hmm. lean into more of their experience i see and then you give them tools to uh to work on uh until you return i take it it depends on what the organization has the stamina to do Because Mm -hmm. what I don't believe in doing is extra work and creating worksheets and homework and your organization is not committed to doing that. But if you are committed, then yes, I give you as many resources. I even help sometimes people think about what are my monthly agendas for the next six months to integrate DEI into conversations. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people are like, we started off with DEI training. But now we need you to help us restore or repair or remediate some conflicts between people. So yes, I work, I come in and I may have some worksheets with them or some assignments on how to uh, mend these relationships. Sometimes people are saying we want to include um, an assessment of DEI development and accountability and performance reviews. How do you, how can you help us get ready for those performance reviews? And I'll send over resources and toolkits that hiring managers and HR teams can use. So absolutely, there can be work in between. And then other times I say, I've delivered this to you all. Now you all go and decide based on your organizational culture and priorities, decide what you're going to do with it. And then I'll come back in a couple months and check in. Mm-hmm. Now, can you explain the DEI, what that is again, please? Yes, the diversity, equity, and inclusion. So this is the way I try to explain it to make it really simple for people. Diversity is about the representation of differences that actually make a difference on outcomes and operations, whatever okay. that looks like for your group. Mm-hmm. It's all about the representation of differences that make a difference. And there are times where organizations have different diversity initiatives to increase representation because there may be underrepresentation of a group that would make a difference on a conversation, right? So sometimes when you think about nursing, if men are underrepresented, a diversity initiative mm-hmm. may be to increase the number of racially and ethnically underrepresented men in nursing, right? 
Um, there may be yep. when you think about um, engineering, indigenous women are underrepresented in this area. So there may be a diversity initiative to bring more engineering pre-college camps or apprenticeships to areas where there are high populations of indigenous groups, right? Indigenous women. So your diversity initiative may change based on your sector, your area, your location, your geography, your country. It looks different globally. What we think about as diversity here in the U.S., may not necessarily be the same diversity principles or needs in Singapore or China or Australia, right? Mm -hmm. So diversity is all about figuring out what differences need to be represented that are impacting our operations and outcomes. That's diversity work. Equity work says we'll make the necessary adjustments to policies, protocols, and social norms We'll make those adjustments so that we're increasing access and opportunities for marginalized or under-resourced groups. So if you know, like, wow, we've got these amazing opportunities here, but the people that can't reach it are those with disabilities or people with that speak a different language or people that don't have transportation, then you've got to figure out how to adjust the opportunity to increase access for those vulnerable communities. So that's equity work. Equity work is all about making the necessary adjustments to increase access and opportunities. And then inclusion, power and influence. How am I making sure you have power and influence over the outcomes and the operations, regardless of if you're represented or not? And Ward, in my work, one of the common misconceptions is people think that they're inclusive if they're kind or if they're welcoming or if they're nice. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you an example. I love to share this in my training, so I'll share it here. If I have 15 colleagues and I invite everyone to my home and I say, hey, it's the end of the year. We've worked really hard. All 15 of you are invited to my home for an end of the year celebration. Mm -hmm. That's not inclusive just because I extended the invitation to everyone. That's just being nice. Right. Absolutely. But if you get there and you recognize, oh, this end of the year party is actually a Christmas party in which before any of us eat, we actually have to gather and say a prayer and give thanks to Jesus. Mm -hmm. But half of the 15 people that are coming are Muslim. Mm. So I invited you, but did I think about the flow of this event and what would be happening? Did I think about how that would impact your experience here? I didn't. So no, that wasn't inclusive. It was just kind. But okay, then fast forward. Let's say you get past that. You're like, oh, blind spot for Nichelle but it's perfectly fine. And then I say, you know what? I greet you at the door and I say, I'll take your jacket. I want you to be so comfortable. There's food, there's drinks. Please help yourself to anything here. Mm -hmm. And you are so excited. You're so hungry. You've waited all day for this party. You go into the kitchen. You are preparing to make a plate. And every option is a meat option and a pork option. Mm. What are you supposed to eat if you're vegetarian or vegan 
Yeah. Or if you don't eat pork. Yep. You have nothing you can put on your plate now. And then you're like, okay, you know what? Blind spot in the shell. I get it. I'll just go grab a drink. You know, I won't eat here. I'll grab dinner when I leave. Mm-hmm. Then you go over to the drink counter and there's nothing but bourbon and tequila. <laughs> there's no water. There's no juice. There's no no sugar added or sugar-free options. It's just all bourbon and tequila. Yeah. Who does that exclude? Well, anyone who's in recovery which they shouldn't have to disclose or anyone who has a religious limitation or mm-hmm. anyone who's just like, I don't want to drink with my coworkers. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. So even though I was nice to you and I invited everyone and you came into my home and I greeted you at the door and I took your coat and I said, help yourself to whatever that is not inclusivity because your cultural dynamics, regardless of what they are, were not considered. You had no power or influence over what this experience looked like. And I shouldn't just have to send you an email to say, hey, are you the one who can't drink tequila? Are you the one who can't eat meat? Because if so, then I'll tuck you off of water in the corner. No, I should build the spread to say, whoever shows up will be able to have an enjoyable experience here. Do I have seats that can support plus size people? Do I have enough space for people to move around who may have physical limitations, right? So inclusivity is all about power and influence, regardless of if you've disclosed or if you're represent. If I'm aware that you're represented here, right? Mm-hmm. So diversity, equity, inclusion. When we talk about that common sense, some of these practices may be common sense. Like let's not just have bourbon and tequila. Let's include a water and a juice. But other times we're also not thinking about what could be like, for example, with the alcohol, what could, what harm could be done if the only option here is alcohol and how do I take better care of people? So that's how I explain diversity, equity, inclusion. I try to make it really simple. This stuff does not need to be as complicated as it is. When we complicate it, that's what prevents or presents, excuse me, barriers to getting this work done. Absolutely. So I don't think um, I like how you presented that in that package because it's clear. It's succinct. I can see that a lot of times we don't really learn that until someone like you presents that to us, because for me, I don't drink. I never have. And because like when I went to Mississippi, it was a whole traumatic thing down there. And everybody I know got drunk every night. I get to college, everybody get drunk. I said, I don't think I ever want to drink. So now if I go to a party and I tell people I don't drink, it's like, like, what? What do you mean? Well, you want to get drunk tonight? And I'm trying to say, I, I don't do it. So I yep. sometimes find myself resorting to almost lying, you know, yep. bad experience, man. I can't drink no more. So I shouldn't yep. have to do that. And I, I shouldn't feel bad for that. So I'm Absolutely. glad you said that. Absolutely. Yeah. Wonderful. That's a great example. And even thinking about sometimes corporate parties, they have these beautiful bars, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. How many times do they have mocktails or alcohol-free beverages new year's parties love to get together and celebrate new year's but how but but how often do you walk in and there's a spread of alcohol-free wines right or alcohol-free cocktails it It doesn't and so this this idea that i have to explain myself that Mm -hmm. is one of the number one hurdles that people face within their organizations is this fear around explaining themselves and that also comes from, I could say this and you still not get it. 
And now mm-hmm. I'm tired because right. you're not the first person I've had to explain this to. Over and over again. Yeah, yeah. you're right. I, I didn't even realize I kind of felt that way until you said it. I, I, man, I was like, oh man, if I throw a party now, I know how to include people and stuff now because I know how I feel. And I, I never even thought about it. I never yeah. thought about someone being a vegetarian or a vegan. So that, that's something I got to put in my wheelhouse now. And I'll say this too. Sometimes people say, well, I'll just grab, you know, a vegetable tray or a fruit tray and that will satisfy the vegans or the vegetarian. And it's like, no, no, have a quality spread for them as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Like don't make them feel like you're limited to this tray, but there are five other pans of options here for everyone else. Mm-hmm. right yeah. inclusivity yeah. says i'm going to build this experience in a way that when you show up you're included in the same quality of experience that everyone else is what does that mean at work how do i show up and not have to be the person that oh i can't speak a certain way i can't dress a certain way i can't share my own values my hair has to be a certain way are you included then in the fabric and the culture of the organization? No, you have this little pocket where it's acceptable. Maybe it's acceptable in your team, but mm-hmm. not in the wider organization. How then are people feeling? Good point. That is very 100% accurate. Mm-hmm. Because it's almost like a code shifting. Is that something that you think we should do or acceptable or? Wow, Ward. (laughs) It's a powerful question. So this is what I will say. I think code switching, I think it really depends on the person. Mm -hmm. Do I think it's something we should have to do for survival? No, I do not. That is harmful. Mm -hmm. If you're doing this because it is the, the way that you believe increases your chances of survival whether that's literally or whether that's career-wise whether that's related to a promotion related Mm -hmm. to dating options whatever that may be then I say no because at a certain point when you want to be off and you're not able to that has consequences on your health yes you're right but do I think there is a way or there is a benefit mm. to knowing your audience. Yeah, I do. The way I talk to my kids is not yeah. the way I talk to my manager. Absolutely, okay? right? <laughs> the way I talk to my husband is not the way I talk to my dad. Mm-hmm. Now, most people will say the Nichelle you get at church is the same Nichelle you get at work, is the same Nichelle you're going to get, you know, hanging mm-hmm. out at her house. But there are some things, I'll give you a, a, uh, a transparent example. Today I was playing basketball and Ward, I could not hit a single shot. And I got mm. so frustrated and I yelled out some profanity. Mm-hmm. But I'm among my community of people that I play with four or five, six times a week. They know when I get to that point, okay, Nichelle's kind of hit a wall, but it's because of how she's feeling about her performance right now. I'm probably not going to do that at work war. You know, like if Mm -hmm. I'm frustrated with something at work, I'm probably not just going to yell that out in the meeting. But is that code switching? No, that is just being able to say, I've got boundaries for myself. I've got rules of engagement. 
right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Code switching is where you're doing this because again, survival is attached to it or there's this subconsciousness that we develop around these expectations, whether they're told to us or not. And I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago, we took in two of our nephews. We were fostering them. Brilliant little boys. Brilliant mm-hmm. little boys. They're from they're from Fort Wayne, Indiana. So coming out to Bloomington is a totally different experience for them, right? Mm-hmm. This was also the first time that they had really gotten to know me. And so the youngest one, he has a special place in my heart. They both do. But this youngest one decided, I mean, he's incredibly creative ward, truly. Like this kid will probably go on to be famous, okay? Okay, yeah. Well, he decides he is going to mock me. He wants to now do an impression or impersonation <laughs> of Aunt Shell. <laughs> I said, go for it, honey. Give me the best performance you've got. So I record this performance, okay? Yes, yes. And he walks into the, the front door and he goes and sits down at the countertop and he's acting like he's typing on a computer. And then he starts to impersonate me. And he completely changes his voice. Oh. And as he's doing his impersonation, he's reflecting on it or he's sharing his perception of what I talk about in the garden. So it's Mm. all this inclusive language about how you've got to accept queer people and how people want to transition. They can't. He's doing all this stuff. And then so when the, I mean, he did a great read, mind you. He read me for Phil, okay? (laughs) And when it was all said and done and I stopped recording and I said, uh, why did you change your voice like that? Like, that is not how I sound. You know, he said to me, he said, yeah, it is. It's how you always change your voice when you get on your calls. Uh Oh, he was 11 when he said that to me. Mm. What he had called out without knowing that he was calling it out was that I code switch when I get onto my Zoom calls. And I, that was the hardest pill to swallow because what I realized I was teaching my kids is that you need to be ready to code switch when you in front of these different folks. It was subconscious to me, Ward. I didn't even know I was doing it. So then I started to ask myself, where did I learn those lessons? And why Why am I doing this? How am I not aware of it? But my kids are. Mm -hmm. That right there, changed the game for me it, it made me really think about what harm I was doing because now I've got these beautiful black boys that are watching me do this and I'm sending them into the world with the same expectations even if I never told them to do it mm-hmm. so do I think is necessary do I think we should do it I'm not going to say we should I'm saying I realize that we do that we've learned to do it for survival And that, yes, there are rules of engagement that you can set for yourself. But if you are doing this because you are thinking this is the best way to be digestible by someone else, then I recommend you rethink that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, we were talking off air before we got on about uh, Club Shay Shay and Monique's latest interview. I believe she mentioned something like that, too. She said when she's on stage, it's not the same person that you're going to get at home. And I think she's saying that too. So I guess it's a benefit to do that or just maybe just being professional and sometimes being yourself because you can't give your pearls among swines as the Bible says. Well, so, and 
And that's the key difference, right? Being Showing up and being professional does not necessarily mean that you're code switching, but right. we've been taught to think about that as Black people, that in order to be seen as professional, we must code switch. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. is not necessarily the case. Tough call. Tough call on that one. I, I watched an episode, an old episode on the Oprah show uh, when I was researching for this program, for this episode. Mm-hmm. And this guy, he did the whole Eddie Murphy thing. He put on the, the white face, went to a hotel, walked right by the, you know, the people that opened the door for him, right? He didn't live there, walked right in, went on to this thing, came back next day to himself. They're like, hey, hey, buddy, where you going? What you doing? What are you going in here for? You know, mm-hmm. he said, I'm going to see a friend. I got to announce him. And here's this whole thing. So I'm thinking, I think as a black person, I, I feel this way. Of course, I'm old school. I feel like you almost have to do it to, to get along because if I don't, I'm now I'm going to be on the radar because, you know, just a tough thing, you know. So mm-hmm. how, how does how the, how do you get a company to realize that, hey, you hired this guy, but he's only him. He's the only black dude here. I mean, how do you mm. get them to get the value? And maybe we need to consider that or what? I don't even know. I don't even know if you want that special attention. How do you deal with that? Well, so that's where it becomes difficult when there's just one or maybe two or maybe five, right? A handful of a particular demographic and yes. a, a mass of another dominant culture, right? It becomes mm-hmm. difficult because people start to assume that that one or that few is a representation of the whole group. And that can be a challenge because it's like my Black experience is not necessarily your Black experience, Ward. And Mm -hmm. I don't speak for every Black woman. I can share some cultural nuances that we all are aware of, but that don't mean that we subscribe to them. So it can be difficult when you're in small groups like that. What I try to get people to focus on, instead of figuring out what are the cultural practices related to this one Black person, I try to help organizations think about how to create a brave enough space that this Mm -hmm. one or this few would be willing to share their experiences, right? If there Mm -hmm. is not, let me say this, people always run around here talking about some, I want to be in a safe space. (laughs) It grinds my gears to hear (laughs) this phrase because what is safe for one does not mean it is safe for all. And the other thing, 90% of the time when people say safe space, what they're really using that word interchangeably for is I want to feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. I want to feel comfortable. And this right to comfort is a dominant culture or white supremacist idea that your beliefs, your assumptions, your fears will take automatic precedent. No one will challenge those. No one will disgrace those. No one will push back on those. It's this assumption that that you're the center and that is supposed to give you comfort. So There's a part of me that's like, no, don't single this one person out and ask about their experiences and their preferences because they don't speak on behalf of the entire culture. But what we do need to help organizations think about is how do I make enough room? How do I create a brave environment for people to be willing to take the risk 
of sharing their own experiences, sharing their 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 background, sharing elements of their culture, and knowing that they won't be scrutinized or demonized or that those things won't be weaponized against them later. I try to help organizations create brave spaces rather than trying to create spaces that check all the cultural boxes because it's impossible. Right, yeah. That, that, that's another excellent point you made there. And, and one of your trainings I was uh, attended that you had talked about how people, once they get to know you, they they kind of change their perception of you. I think you had mentioned uh, of a, a guy who would like to worship eggs or something and everybody thought he was cool till they found out he did that. And I was like, man, that, that that's true. Cause I think, I'm thinking from my perspective, it comes to a point where I got to draw the line. I'm like, okay, so you do this or you think you should come in with blue spiked hair or, or you should wear all black leather trench coats. I, I mean, I respect that, but I guess I'm kind of scared of it at the same time too. And I wonder do other people view me like that as well? Mm. So but like, like you said, it's, you can't really pick one or two people down, but, but if, because if five or six guys come in wearing black trench leather coats in the summer, I'm probably going to take a break. I'm going to have to leave at that time. You know, I got something to do in the community. I'm leaving. And am I wrong for that? Or or how do we address those issues as a, as a company? So what you just brought to the surface is that we all have biases. Yes. Biases are not all negative. Okay. In fact, we have some positive biases that help us make informed and wise decisions. Mm -hmm. So if you are working in an environment where it has not been typical for someone to walk in in a particular attire and you start to have some concerns about possible behaviors and such, having that bias by itself is not necessarily wrong. There's no way to get rid of 100% of our mm-hmm. We need to stop thinking that. We need to stop thinking that we're going to live in a bias-free world. Mm-hmm. We're not. Here's what we need to get to. I recognize I hold these biases. How do I disrupt them before mm-hmm. I cause harm to someone? So okay. me deciding, hey, those trench coats, I'm a little bit nervous about, right? I recognize mm-hmm. Black History Month is on the horizon and maybe there might be some strong feelings about Black History Month here. Maybe yes. people are not happy that Juneteenth is now being recognized. Maybe people have been very clear about their responses to our um, national leadership. Mm-hmm. I may remove myself and be more observant, but I'm not going to attack them or berate them or withhold resources from them just because I'm a little more on alert because of my bias. Mm-hmm. See, there's a difference here between knowing what your bias is and disrupting it before it becomes harmful. That's what we need more people to do. A lot of people have their biases. They don't disrupt them. They make decisions on how they're going to treat people based on the bias. Mm-hmm. And then that's where discrimination and harm is happening. I see. So is that part of the harm reduction? Uh, I guess being proactive and how you're going to respond to those biases? 
it's just a slight delay in here. I'm, I'm not sure if you're getting it, but it's it's just a little lag in there, but that's okay. Can you can you hear me? Okay, now I can. Sorry, Ward, I, I lost <laughs> you there for a minute. Okay, yeah, there's a slight lag in there. But I was saying, um, well, let me move into my next question. I really want to ask you about this one too. I, I was really saying about harm reduction. I was saying that harm reduction is kind of, that's what you do being proactive by saying, okay, I'm going to plan on how I will deal with this and that, whatever. And that reduces the harm per se. Is mm. that correct? That's a very interesting way of looking at it. You can also consider a harm was done. We're aware that a certain set of policies or norms are harmful. So how do we shift those to reduce the harm? So it can okay. be proactive, but it also can be reactive in a sense that we, because the reality is a lot of these systems and such that are in place have been harming people for a long time. Yes. So to okay. reduce the harm, we have to get real about what has happened and then actively work to do something different. So we would love for harm reduction to be proactive, but a lot of times it is very reactive based on what we've learned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's what concerns me about the workplace because I know people have always said, I have an open door policy. We can talk about this and that. And it's, it's, it's kind of, mm, I don't know. I don't know how I feel comfortable when nobody knows me and they say, oh, well, talk about it. I'm, I, I've learned to just kind of just like, it's almost five. I can just wait to five and I'm out. I ain't gonna worry about. It, but thank you for giving me the opportunity. But mm -mm, mm -mm, and you know, when people say they have an open door policy, sometimes I ask leaders. I say, "Is that open door policy only extended to the conversations we have in private, or is there an open door that says I am able to express my concerns even in public? Am I able to say this in a group meeting, a team meeting, a department meeting?" Or can I only say this when it's you and I one-on-one? -on -one? That's a good question. Tell me how open way. your door really is. And the reason why I ask that question is because sometimes we say open door, but then we want it to be hush, hush. Mm -hmm. We try to field it all through us first before our realities can actually be shared across the organization. We want you to say it to us so that we can make you feel better in that moment. But we absolutely have no plan to address, to rectify, or to hold accountable the people that need to hear it the most. Or I want you to say it to me first so I can tweak what you're saying and mm -hmm. deliver it differently. As though I yeah. need you to gatekeep my feelings, my perspectives, my experiences. So I ask leaders, how open is the door really? Because if I do not have hard. the ability to say it in front of the team, knowing that I'm going to operate with integrity and candor and respect, then why should I say it to you one-on-one? -on -one? That's got to be concerning for a company to let you get up there in front and be that open. I've never mm -hmm. seen that. This is new to me. Mm -hmm. So are they are they telling you, hey, we got pumped the brakes on limited, but you you can go, just don't go there, go <laughs> around. But because it seems like you you bring up all this, I've seen you do it. And <laughs> do you get it? Do, do you get any? Uh, are they coming to you on the side? I say, okay, we appreciate that, but you know, I do. I get people that ask me to adhere to a certain set of boundaries, okay. and honestly. I, I go back and forth on when 
to do it. I've walked mm. away from clients before because I've said to them, the game that you want me to play compromises the principles of the work that I do and I won't That's do right. it. Mm. You've invited me in here to check this box and say that you've now done diversity, equity, and inclusion work but you really aren't doing it. And I say, hey, I'm not the best consultant for you. We're not the best company for you, but here are some additional online resources that don't take up any more black and brown people's time and effort. You can access these for free, mm, right? I like that, I like um, that. So there's a there's a line that I, that I will walk. Now, if it is a matter of, hey, we're just not there yet, but we want you to get us there. But mm -hmm. let me tell you a little bit about the company culture so you're aware. Then I walk this line of education, accountability, and grace. And I do a lot yes. of questioning to help the organization get to the point where they're ready to talk about it. So yes, there are times where I will say, you know what? I'm coming into a conservative organization in the middle of Ohio, miles and miles away from anything else, very rural, specific industry, perhaps. And I recognize as soon as I say diversity, your people are going to shut down. They're not going to <laughs> anything else I say, right? right? So instead of me saying diversity, I'll ask them the question of, well, what's the benefit of inclusion? What's the inclusive advantage here? How does this advantage position your organization to win well? I start to get them thinking about the principles without ever having to say the words. It's like when mm -hmm. I want my husband to do something different. And instead yes. of just telling him, I expect you to do this, I start yeah. to ask questions and say, hey, have you thought about the last time we've gone on a date? Instead of coming to say like, I expect you to take me on a date Friday. Yeah, I say, yeah. you thought about the time that we've been able to spend together lately? He gets mm -hmm. it. He's like, yeah. oh, okay, wait. A couple weeks mm -hmm. from now, we're going to go hang out. Let's find a babysitter. Yeah. So right. there are ways to ask questions and lead with curiosity to help people be more curious than it mm -hmm. is to deliver something to automatically inflame or escalate their skepticism. I don't want this work to be a barrier to people's learning. I want them to have an opportunity to engage with it. Now, I'll tell you this, Ward, once I get you and I realize you're curious and ready to learn, then we go there. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like what I think about with physical therapy, right? Yes. Your physical therapy has to gauge your ability first. Mm -hmm. Know your limitations know your pain points, and then they work to help you progress farther and farther and farther each time to even when what you're doing is painful, you walk away feeling like it's worth it. That's how mm -hmm. I deliver on this diversity work. I don't have to jump right in and get to the end result immediately. I can walk this line of we'll stretch you a little bit stretch you a little bit. But if I can tell you're playing games and you just wanted to have me here as a token, mm -hmm. sister girl rolls out. That's not my ministry. Yes. I, I think I've just learned another jewel from you on that. I work with the yep. underserved population. And I think one thing I was doing that I'm definitely going to correct is I was coming in 
hot and saying, okay, we got to do this, we got to do this, why aren't you doing that? But if, if I use your approach, your pragmatic approach and say, what are some of the benefits that could come if, if you were to able to do this or not yeah. do that? So yeah. I, I see that, that how you brought grace in, in all there. And, and I think uh, I'm definitely going to share that with my people too, because that 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 goes a lot easier. I guess it's like a ball. If I threw a ball yeah. at you, hit your side of the head, it's going to hurt. But if I tossed yeah. it, you can catch it and feel like you're part of this. Yes. I even tell people it's like lifting weights. The very first time you ever lift weights, are you starting off with the 200 pound bench press? Probably not. And if you do, there's a risk. You could hurt yourself. That's the same way I think about diversity work. Why jump in and make someone carry a 200 pound weight when I realize even though it's the best of intentions, Mm -hmm. I could hurt someone. So I think about how about we start off with five? Then let's add a 10. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Let's add a 25. Let's see if we like, let me test out where you actually are before I just put on you. Well, the ideal weight to be bench pressing is 200 pounds. It may be, but you're not there yet. And that's okay. And the thing is with diversity work, you have to be okay with knowing you may never see them hit their 200 pound bench. You may never see it, but if you see the principles of commitment Mm -hmm. or education, accountability, and grace, then you can be confident in they will continue working towards it even when you're not there. And that's what I really want for people. Maybe as a leader in this workplace, you can't repair the harm that you've done. Mm -hmm. People have completely tapped out. You have a low trust environment your um, low engagement, low accountability, fine. You run your course at this organization. But when you go to the next organization, Mm -hmm. can you add on something that you've learned in order to get a different set of outcomes? It may take you 10 or 15 different organizations. It may take you 20 or 30 years. I don't need you to get to 200 pounds quick. I just need you to be committed to getting there. Mm -hmm. So let me ask about you then, because doing this work is, is definitely uh, beneficial, but does it, how do you get up to go into a place to start over again? Because I know how I feel and I know I was, I was sitting in the corner like, again, mm, I saw, I said, okay, yeah. yeah, to keep doing that, how do you keep, get the energy back? Yeah, I will say this, and I know maybe not all of your listeners will align to this, and I don't mean to push this on anyone at all, but I will say, Ward, it is a God-given, divine gift that I Mm. have. I did not go looking for this work, and I did not realize how long I had been doing this work and how God was positioning me to do this work. And every... Every time I think back on different memories, I'll give you an example. I told you we grew up in poverty. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about what it means to be homeless, when Mm -hmm. I talk about what it means to be on food stamps, to leverage Section 8 housing, when I talk about what it means to watch my father in the middle of the night while he's struggling with the side effects of chemotherapy, to load up this little red wagon with four or five 
baskets of clothes to go wash his kids' laundry at the local laundromat, having to cross one of the busiest streets in Indianapolis to do so. When I think about what I have been through, it is impossible for me not to share my story and help other people think about how to reduce harm. Because how do we get to the place where we have conditions of poverty? Some people will say, well, you are on section eight, your housing is paid for, but let's start to look at the systemic harm. There's, now don't get me wrong, there's a benefit to it because it paid our bills, honey. Yes. But when you think yes. about programs like that, what people don't see is if you make even $5 more than what they tell you you are allowed to make, you lose that benefit. Yeah. $5, $10, yeah. $100. So what does that do to someone who says, I have multiple kids that I have to provide for versus I have this hunger and this desire to go and work to get out of these conditions. Mm -hmm. Education was our way out of those conditions, right? Yeah, so yeah. how do I keep getting up and doing it? One, I recognize this work is not even just about me. Everything that I went through in life that I thought was difficult and hard and undesirable, it wasn't for me. It was for the people, it was for the organizations that needed to hear these stories. That's what keeps me going. What keeps me going is when I go into an organization that is like, we never thought about half the things you're saying. And now we've changed our policies or we've changed our, our cultural practices within the organization to reduce harm. I get a thrill out of it. This does not feel like work to me at all. And I don't just do it when I'm clocking in or getting a check. I'm doing this at home too. Yeah, yeah, it's just what I do. That's how I keep going. And don't get me wrong. I have an amazing family. My husband taught me how to rest because I'd be up working. So two, three, four o'clock in the morning ward, really. And he'd be yeah. like, can you like, no, like close the laptop. So now I've learned and I, I was not always good at this. It's just been in the last maybe three or four years that I've been become comfortable with resting. That's the mm. other thing that keeps me going. I will rest. I will I will get in my recliner. I will avoid all emails. I will eat my chocolate cake. I will cuddle up with my puggle Lola. I'll go and play basketball. I'll take a vacation. I'll say no to something at work because I don't mm. have the capacity. Even if there are no meetings on my calendar, I'm telling you today, I don't have the capacity. The answer is no. I step out of stuff when I'm like, nope, I'm tired. I'm not seeing my family. I'm not having time with my children. I've yes. learned to say no so that I can be well, right? So that's the other part of it is even though I'm assigned and called to this work and the creativity around it and the way that I can deliver it is just really a God-given talent. Also recognize that God said that this body is a temple, and this temple needs to be cared for and nurtured for just as much as I'm caring for and nurturing other people. So rest and wellness and actually taking time to do the things that fill my cup are what keep me going. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some yeah. days where I'm like, I need not to talk to any more humans today because mm -hmm. they've worn me out. 
And then there are other days where I'm like, I started talking to people at 8 a.m. and it's 8 p.m. and I just finished my last meeting and I'm still really excited. So it's mm-hmm. an up and down. But but when you're called to the work that you do and when you do it without your own agenda, mm-hmm. sometimes I feel that people go into this work because they have a way that they want to see the world. Yes. And sometimes even that lens can be very narrow. But if you open yourself up and say, I want us all to shape how we see the world. I don't want you to just take from this what I believe or what I want. I want you to contribute to this. In what ways can this world make room for you? When we do that, it makes this work easy because I'm learning from you all the same time that you're learning from me. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's like a candle. One candle can light another one. So yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I like the part where you also mentioned about you're able to say no. That's something I had to learn over time too. Cause I would like, yeah, I'll do this, sure I'll do it, and didn't want to do it. But one of my favorite books, uh, the Bible, it, it kind of talked about how Jesus sometimes he would go off by himself too. So it's good to take time to have time for yourself. And yeah. I don't think a lot of people realize that. So I appreciate that you, you're you doing that as well, too. Absolutely. When I lived in Madrid, one of the things I loved most about living in Spain was that after lunch, I didn't have to rush back to work. I could go mm-hmm. take a nap in my hostel. I could go spend time with friends and family if I wanted to. I was not confined to this workplace culture that said you always have to be going, 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 going. It's actually a thing. It's a concept there where the town shut down and there's no work happening so that people can rest. That was one of the most beautiful things because here in the U.S., we don't always make room for people to rest. Right. Yeah. What they call it? A siesta? Is that what it's called? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I know a little bit about that. That, I love that. I hadn't been there yet. But that's on my bucket list to do that as well. Wonderful. Before I get to this uh, second round, my last question I have this is, can you tell me a little bit about imposter syndrome? Mm-hmm. I think I may have that. Yeah. Imposter syndrome is this psychological pattern of self-doubt in which you honestly believe that you got lucky or that everyone else around you has this thing called life figured out much more than you do. Mm-hmm. And it's not because there's something actually wrong or you're not doing something or you're not showing up well. It's just because you have this internalized self-doubt that is shaped by the cycles of socialization and the bias cycle that have created this set of messaging around who you are, how you should be, what you should look like, what you should be doing. And so now you self-doubt yourself and it can actually be limit, like it can be self-limiting in which you won't take risk, you won't take opportunities. Or if you do, you present so strongly in ways that people say, you're a micromanager, you're arrogant, you're not a team player. But the reality is you're holding on so tight to your imposter syndrome that you're trying your best to have people observe you a certain way or convince Mm -hmm. yourself to see yourself a certain way when the reality is you're already brilliant. You're amazing. You're talented. You're competent. You're skilled. But you don't necessarily see that. Mm, Yeah. I got a couple options here. Or I think it's the perfectionist 
the Superman or Superwoman, the natural genius, the soloist, and the expert, I believe. Mm-hmm. So, so you saying we just basically try to fake it till we make it? Is that kind of what the imposter syndrome is? Yeah. So let me give an example of the perfectionist. The perfectionist yeah. is the person who's like, they won't start a task until they feel like everything is in, in order and they're just ready. They've got mm. all the answers. They've got every last resource that is necessary. They just will not take a risk to start and say, hey, we'll figure this out along the way. They're like, nope, all of this needs to be in order and it needs to happen perfectly. This is also the person who they can execute a project or a program. A hundred things will go well. One thing will go wrong. When I say go wrong, Mm -hmm. like maybe you forgot to put the napkins at the end of the table instead of the middle of the table. Right. And you will focus on the fact that I can't believe I did not have the napkins there. Yeah. Uh, can't believe they weren't at the end of the table. I hope people don't think now I'm not able to host a good program or that I can't think about organ. You don't care that you just had this amazing event that raised $5 million for your organization. Mm-hmm. You don't care that you just recruited 15 more volunteers or that you got a, a proposal out on time. You don't care. You're just mm-hmm. focused on the one thing that went wrong that's not quite a fake it till you make it but it's a self-doubting um approach or philosophy that can be very limited um self-limiting okay i i, I wonder what kind of conditioned that way because our uh, my my sister one time she was talking to her son and he had got his sport card back he had got all a's and a b and the first question was what you get to be in? Why you get to be? Instead of, you know, looking back now, thinking instead of saying, "Hey, that's awesome, you did great," you know, da 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 da. Let's keep up the good work. And I just, yeah. Yep, that's exactly it. And sometimes it's not even what our parents say to us. It may be how we see other people get rewarded or punished in class. Um, it can be, do I notice that my teacher really celebrates Nichelle for being? the person to get the answers the quickest versus me who it takes a little bit longer, right? Like it can even be things that are not necessarily said to us or done to us, but that we're observing from other people. Okay. I really appreciate that. Well, I'm going to go ahead and get ready to close out of here. But before I give my final thoughts, I want to ask you, um, can you let people know again, the name of your company and your social media footprints where they can find you in case they get questions or just want to even recruit you? Absolutely. Well, one, thank you so much for having me. And I really do feel like I could talk to you all day. If I didn't have to jump and do some family things today, I'd continue our conversation. But maybe there's a part two here where we can dive more into imposter syndrome. Um, The name of my company is The Garden. It's spelled G-U-A-R-D-E-N, like guard, like basketball guard. Um, and you can connect with me at www.thegardenllc.com. You can also find me as Nichelle Wash on LinkedIn, and I'm happy to connect. Okay, well, thank you. Let me get my final thoughts and we'll get out of here. Yeah. My final thoughts is this. Uh, Les Brown is one of my favorite motivational speakers, and he once said, in every day, there are 1,440 minutes. That means we have 1,140 daily opportunities to make a positive impact. So with that being said, please remember to be a voice and not an echo. Once again, thank you to my esteemed guest, Ms. Michelle Walsh. And thank you for those who listen to the podcast. Remember, everybody has a story to tell, but we just want to know yours. Until next time, peace. Thanks, Ward.